reading is Psalm 13 on page 548 in the Church Bibles. Psalm 13, for the director of music, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my feet will rejoice when I fall. My foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Good morning, everyone. I'd like to add my welcome to Andrews. My name is Dermot Flanagan, and I'm a member and an elder here in Grosvenor. And this morning, we're going to take a break from our series in Genesis to have a look at Psalm 13, which Richard just read for us. Um, Psalm 13 was written by David, and it's a psalm of lament. Now, what is a psalm of lament? Well, the purpose of a psalm of lament is to tell the Lord about a difficult situation, to ask him for his help, and to praise him for helping. And since about a third of all the psalms are psalms of lament, lamenting is clearly something God knows that we need to learn how to do. In a broken world where there's so much suffering, we need the language of laments to help us bring our struggles to God. Some laments are community, congregational psalms, and others are individual, personal laments. And Psalm 13, as we'll see, is more of an individual, personal lament. And there's a surprising degree of honesty found in the prayers and songs of the psalms. We find honest lament to God with repeated questions like, why? And how long? How long, O Lord, is a frequent cry to God in the Psalms? And we see it here in verse 1 of Psalm 13. And prayers of crying out like this flow from desperately challenging situations where life can sometimes feel overwhelming. And yet these prayers also show the confident expectations of our honest cries to our compassionate and faithful God. The Lord invites his people to cry out our honest complaints to him, no masks, no pretenses, 
even when our hearts are breaking. Before we look at Psalm 13 in more detail, let's ask for God's help in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you invite us to approach you honestly in prayer with our struggles. We thank you that we can ask you for help. Please speak to us through your word this morning. And please help us in our struggles, no matter how long they last, to be able to remember and trust in your unfailing love to us in Christ Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can anybody complete this famous quote from George Orwell's book, Animal Farm? All animals are equal, but... <laughs> yeah, thanks. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. That quote is a statement of, uh, that seems to have contradicted itself, sorry, and that's known as a paradox. Does anybody know why it's a paradox? What's contradictory about all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others? Richard, you look like you're about to tell me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're either equal or they're not. One can't be more equal than another. Um, many years ago, someone once said to me, you're the biggest exaggerator in the whole world. <laughs> and I can't remember what I had just done or said, but I think what they said was another example of a paradox. By telling me that I'm the biggest exaggerator in the whole world, they may actually have surpassed the level of exaggeration they were trying to accuse me of. But in Psalm 13 that we're looking at this morning, there's another apparent paradox. The psalmist appears to have sorrow in his heart in verse 2. And yet without any change in circumstances, his heart seems to be rejoicing at the same time in verse 5. How can his heart simultaneously have sorrow and rejoicing? What we're going to see as we look at this psalm, that in Christ, we can simultaneously experience sorrow and rejoicing as we endure even the most challenging of trials. And this psalm gives us words to express our deepest sorrows to God while helping our hearts to simultaneously rejoice in his salvation. But before we rush into applying the psalm directly to our own sufferings, it's worth noting that references to the psalmist's enemy in verses 2 and 4 could make that a little tricky. In my sufferings, I don't usually have an enemy in mind, so I don't feel like my enemy is triumphing over me. I also don't think many of us have enemies who are waiting in the wings to rejoice when we die, or to celebrate after we die with the words, I have overcome him. That isn't the experience that we usually have. So before we can apply this psalm to ourselves and pray it, we need to understand it in David's context, and we need to see how it is then fulfilled in Jesus. This is an intensely personal psalm, and yet because it's spoken by the king, King David and later King Jesus, 
It's not entirely individual. Because what happens to the king deeply impacts the king's people. The structure of the psalm, uh, if you still have it open in front of you, that would be helpful. The structure of the psalm is quite straightforward. The king first laments in verses 1 and 2. He tells the Lord about his difficult situation. Second, he prays. He asks the Lord for help in verses 3 and 4. And third, he rejoices in verses 5 and 6. He rejoices in trust. So he laments, he prays, and he rejoices. So let's take a look at his lament first. In verses 1 and 2, the king laments. We don't know which particular circumstances David was lamenting here in this psalm, but he had many very significant struggles in his life that we see in the Bible, which would have warranted a lament like this. Like when he was on the run from his former friend, King Saul, for his life. And again when he was on the run from his son Absalom for his life. That, imagine being on the run from your son for your life. That would give you good cause to cry out to God. And so in the five agonized verse, lines of verses 1 and 2, David's suffering feels as if it has no end. He asks, how long, O Lord? And again, how long? And again, how long? And he says, every day, and how long? There's more than a suggestion here that David has had enough. And this suffering has gone on for too long. And he wants God to bring an end to it now. And we see here that David's sufferings are focused first on God in verse 1, then on himself at the start of verse 2, and finally on his enemy at the end of verse 2. So first and probably most deeply in verse 1, he feels like the covenant God has forgotten him and hidden his face from him. He feels alienated from God and that is like a foretaste of eternal hell. Being separated from God is what hell would be like. And David's feeling of separation from God feels like it has no end. He cries out in verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And I think it's worth mentioning here that David is expressing what it feels like in his suffering, rather than suggesting that God has actually forgotten him. And then, because David feels alienated from God, he focuses on himself in verse 2. He wrestles with his own thoughts and has sorrow in his heart. There's a deep loneliness about his sufferings. As he says in verse 2, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? 
And then in the last part of verse 2, there's an enemy who threatens to triumph over David. He cries out, how long will my enemy triumph over me? Now, the enemy is singular here in verse 2 and in the first part of verse 4. But there's a plural of foes at the end of verse 4 that David talks about. It isn't spelled out for us in the psalm who the enemy is or who the foes are. But in the context of the psalm, I think it may be reasonable to think that the enemy is death, and particularly death of the covenant king. And the foes appear to be those who would rejoice in the death of the covenant king. Having brought his lament to the Lord in verses 1 and 2, the king turns to prayer in verses 3 and 4. His eyes grow dim and in desperate need of the light of life that comes from seeing the face of God. He's close to death and he cries out in verse 3, look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. But the motive that David offers for his prayer here is significant. In verse 4 he says, My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. In these verses, David's effectively saying, I can't die, because if I do, my enemy will rejoice at defeating me. And that wouldn't be a strong argument if you or I to make it to God on our own. How do we know that God would prefer to spare our life rather than have our enemy rejoice. Maybe it would be better in God's sight for my enemy to rejoice than for me to live. I don't know God's purposes in everything that he does. But there's a difference here. David is the one praying to God and he is the covenant king. God has made a covenant with him and that's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we won't go there right now, but if the heir of that covenant dies and stays dead, the covenant has failed. And for this reason, God must and will answer this prayer of the covenant king. And so in verses 5 and 6, the king rejoices in confident trust. He trusts in God's unfailing love, his covenant love, And he rejoices in his salvation. And in verses 5 and 6, David says, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. And that's quite different to verses 1 and 2. And many years after David, His descendant, the covenant king Jesus, also would have prayed this and all the Psalms. And Jesus, the covenant king, certainly knew what it was to endure the sorrow of separation from from God his Father and of the loneliness of a troubled soul and of the jubilation of a vicious enemy. But as the king... In covenant with God, he too could pray, verses 3 and 4. 
And he could know under the weight of the sorrowful heart, a joyful, trusting heart at the same time. And his followers too can know in Christ what it is to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing in the words of 2 Corinthians. This psalm helps us to both feel and express this, this strange paradox in the life of a follower of Jesus. I'm going to give an example now from my life that many of you are familiar with of having deep sorrow and still being able to trust in God's unfailing love. I would have benefited from knowing better how to use the Psalms of Lament to put words um, and order on my feelings when I was at the start of the, the suffering that I'm about to talk about. But I have to admit, it's something I'm still learning now. Um, I don't claim to have it nailed, but I'm learning to lament, and I certainly would have benefited from knowing how to lament better a few years ago. And even if you feel like you've never experienced any really significant suffering, it probably will come at some stage. And now is the time to learn to lament. So in July 2019, um, four years ago this month, my wife Bridget and I were excited to welcome our second son, Benjamin, after a long and difficult pregnancy. But on his due date, his heart stopped beating and he died. And we were devastated, as many, as many of you know. And even though I never thought this was true theologically, somehow I implicitly never expected that God would allow something like that to happen to me. Theologically, I knew, of course, it could happen to me, but practically, I never thought God would allow that to happen to me. And it felt like the floor had been taken from under me. In the first few days after Benjamin died, I remember how long would his death set us back. I remember thinking it could be three months or more before we might get back to normal after something like this. But I was very naive to think it might be that short or that straightforward. As we tried to come to terms with Benjamin's death and our grief, we read articles by other believers who had experienced similar grief to ours, trying to find some wisdom on how to get through this. And some of the authors, not all, uh, talked about experiencing some miraculous comfort from God. And I have to admit, I hoped we would experience something like what was described in those articles. But we didn't. We did, of course, receive God's comfort in many ways, including through, from many of you, through the practical help and the emotional support that you gave us, and we were very grateful. But these articles were describing something different, a sort of direct intervention from God to somehow lighten the load of the pain and suffering. And the pain and loss felt so unbearable that we just longed for God to do something. But it just didn't seem to come. It didn't feel like God wanted to intervene to lighten our load or give us some special comfort that we so desperately felt we needed from him. 
It often felt like he had turned away from us and left us to come through this intolerable trial on our own. Of course, that wasn't the case, but it sometimes felt like it. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I could relate to those words. We cried out to God to intervene and improve our circumstances, but our grief seemed to have taken hold of us, and God didn't seem to want to intervene to make it lighter. If anything, our circumstances seemed to worsen as time went on for quite a while. I remember being in the car where nobody else could hear me and crying out to God at the top of my voice, why? As I drove away from our house with the crib that Benjamin never got to lie in, it had remained empty. And I remember crying out to God, how bad is this going to get? As our grief impacted more and more on our family life. How long, O oh Lord, how long? When is this going to get better? When will we feel normal again? When will we be able to be carefree again? And it's not long since I've asked some of those questions. When did Benjamin, why did Benjamin have to die? Why us? So many questions. But I didn't expect answers, and I didn't get them. But I had an overwhelming urge to cry out those questions to God the one who knows the answers, even if he seems to remain silent. I didn't get answers, and it didn't feel at the time like God intervened to improve our circumstances. But even with unanswered questions and overwhelming sorrow, I could still trust in God's unfailing love. I knew he had chosen me, and he loved me, and he will always love me, even when I'm faltering. My heart still rejoiced in God's salvation. His salvation is my only hope. I was often emotional singing to the Lord, songs that look forward to Jesus returning and an end to this broken world, a little bit like some of the ones we've sung this morning. Those songs sometimes made tears of joy sneak out of my eyes. And this wasn't a jumping around with excitement kind of joy. It was more of a gratitude to God and a steady confidence and a relief that no matter how long this suffering would be, it will come to an end when Jesus returns. And I remember that God is good, and he has been good to me. Even when that was hard to reconcile with him having taken Benjamin from us, I knew it was true. God is always good. And I could sing verses 5 and 6 of this psalm because Jesus sang the whole psalm before me. Jesus experienced the feeling of abandonment of verse 1 when he cried out to his father on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew the loneliness of sorrow as he single-handedly bore the sins of the world on the cross. And while it may have looked like death had triumphed over Jesus for a short time, he rose again on the third day. Death did not triumph over him. 
God's covenant did not fail because God's covenant king did not stay dead. Jesus called on his father to give light to his eyes so that he wouldn't remain dead and his enemy would not overcome him. The rejoicing of his foes over his death was short-lived as Jesus rose again and appeared to many. As Jesus went to the cross to pay for my sins and the sins of all who trust in him, he trusted in his father's unfailing love. He trusted that his father would raise him from the dead. He remembered his father's goodness. And because Jesus did this, even in my deepest sorrows, sorry, um, sorry, and because Jesus did this, even in my deepest sorrows, my heart rejoices in God's salvation. I know that because Jesus paid for my sin, like him, I won't stay dead in the grave. I will rise to join Jesus, and there will be no more pain or sorrow or death. There will be an end. And the answer to the question, how long, isn't forever because of Jesus. There will be no more broken world. Everything will be made perfect. And I'll see Benjamin again. And I want to urge you today to sing this psalm in Christ too. There is an apparent contradiction in the lives of followers of Jesus. Really, we lament our difficult circumstances and sometimes even feel like the Lord has forgotten us or turned away from us. And yet at the same time, we trust in the Lord's unfailing love and our hearts rejoice in his salvation. Even when we don't see a change in our circumstances and we know the Lord has the power to change them, we trust in his unfailing love and our hearts rejoice in his salvation. We sing to him for he has been good to us. He could heal that illness that we've struggled with for so long. He could have prevented the death of our loved one which has caused us so much pain. He could provide the perfect partner so we no longer endure the pain and loneliness of singleness. He could provide the baby we've longed for for so long. He could bring harmony to the most difficult of family relationships. He could take away our desire for that sin that we've pleaded with him over and over again to help us with. He could resolve all our financial worries he could end that bullying that we've experienced for so long. He could end any war. And that's why he's the one we cry out to for help with all these things. But even when he doesn't appear to change our circumstances, we know we can trust in his unfailing love and our hearts can rejoice in his salvation. We know that he has endured the cross on our behalf so we don't have to be forgotten forever. So he doesn't have to turn his face away from us forever. He has indeed been good to us and we don't even deserve it. And no matter how long we endure suffering, no matter how intense that suffering is, 
We can sing to the Lord, for he has been good to us. As we come to a close, can I ask you all to think of a particular suffering or sorrow that you'd like to bring to God this morning? Maybe it's an example that I mentioned earlier, maybe it's something else entirely, and I'll give you all a few seconds to, to think about it. Hopefully you've had a chance to think of something now. Um, Psalm 13 is a song and a prayer. So let's all read it together now and pray it out loud together. Bearing in mind while we read it how Jesus fulfilled this psalm and bearing in mind the sorrow or the suffering that you want to bring to God this morning. And then when we finished praying Psalm 13 together, we'll stand to respond in song with it is well with my soul. Let's pray together, starting in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me.